Before we get started, let me offer our time to the Lord in prayer. God, we do come to you just in the beginning to uh, speak to you about our time. We pray that your spirit be among us, open our hearts, give us eyes to see, uh, ears to hear, and that we would just be in awe of your greatness and sovereignty and love in all things. We offer this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning we're going to move from our study of uh, the miracles found in John's gospel to the truths found in John's first letter. I want you to know that back in uh, January when I planned out our uh, uh, series for the year, I paired these two together because I believe they share a common theme among them. In fact, John makes that clear as he gives a purpose statement really in his gospel as well as in his first letter. In fact, if you would, go to John chapter 20, and I'll show you what I mean. John chapter 20, verse 31. This is a passage that we actually looked at several times in our study as we looked at the miracles. This is kind of John's purpose statement as he writes it at the end of his gospel. John chapter 20, verse 30 says this. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Remember that. We looked at that several times. That was his point in writing the gospel. Now flip over to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John is... Right before the book of Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. So go to chapter 5, verse 13. 1st John, chapter 5, verse 13. Here again, John gives, as very characteristic of him, a purpose statement in verse 13, and he says this. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. See, the only difference that I see in those two purpose statements is that his gospels were written, in, his gospel was written that you might believe. His letter was written to those who do believe. But in both cases, he's writing to give us the assurance of the salvation that we have through faith in Christ alone. Part of the reason that his gospel and his letter are so similar to one another is because they were written very close to the same period of of time. And they stand unique in terms of our New Testament. Because if you look at the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are known as the synoptics. And the reason they are given that name is because they are very similar to each other. They echo one another very closely. And they were all written fairly soon after Christ's resurrection, somewhere 40, 50 A.D. Okay? But when you look at John's gospel, it stands very unique in comparison. We saw that when we looked at the miracles, didn't we? There are 35 miracles recorded in all the gospels, only seven of which John records. And five of those seven are unique to his gospel. So both his gospel and his letter were written right about the same time, somewhere later, like in the 80 or 90 time period, A.D., So by this time, there's a lot of things that have already begun to take place in the early church. And so I think one of the most significant things that occurs is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. 
what's ironic about that is you'll remember last week we talked about when when Jesus was put before trial and and the the religious leaders made the comment they said we need to get rid of this person we need to get rid of of Christ for the sake of the nation right they were trying to keep the peace it was just a matter of time before these very same people ended up revolting against Rome and Rome comes in with the power of Rome and they ultimately destroy Jerusalem and absolutely annihilate the temple. It took Herod some 50 years to build the temple. It was immaculate, truly a wonder of the world. It stood for less than four years. And when Rome came in, they did not leave one stone standing on another. Just as Jesus prophesied it would happen. So as you can imagine, this was a difficult time. There were hundreds of thousands of people killed during this time of revolt. And when that happened, there was a persecution that began to to increase among both the Jews and the Christians at that time. The early church would feel the pressure of this persecution and they would begin to, to fracture under that pressure. That brought to mind as I was preparing this week that windstorm that came through uh, during the thunderstorm. How many of y'all had damage in your in your house, around your yard? Well, that was my favorite tree, <laughs> right on the corner of it's a big Bradford pear, and uh, that tree um, was about this big around. And when those winds came through, that's Graham, Grant's room that it was uh, falling on. And so I thought, how in the world did that big old tree fall under that the weight of the storm? Okay, we're going to be done with this. Sorry about that. How did did that tree fall under the weight of that storm? Because I had lots of trees in my yard. This is the biggest tree. Well, when I went to look at where it fractured, I want you to look at that. See that dark brown? It shouldn't look like that, right? It it was obviously decayed inside there. It was compromised. But you could not see that from the outside. It was the most beautiful tree in my yard. Beautiful, green, lush, huge. But it was diseased on the inside. And because of that, when the pressure from the outside came, it exposed that disease and the tree fractured under the weight of the wind. Well... That's not all that different than what's happening in the early church. The early church felt this oppression from from Rome as it began to get less and less tolerant of people who were unwilling to worship their gods and goddesses. And not only that, it became really intolerant of those who were unwilling to cave and worship the Caesar who was in power. But the fracture... The division in the church occurred because of a corruption on the inside. People from within the church. And this is specifically what is concerning to John and the reason that he writes this letter. Now, I want you to stop and think about that. Isn't isn't it a sad fact that the church is just getting started in its early years of ministry and it's already being threatened from within. Well, that's John's concern as he writes this letter. And although there's no particular church mentioned, 
John appears to be writing to a specific group of people that he clearly knows and has a history with, and they know him as well. Most scholars agree that he is likely writing to the Ephesian church. John spent much of his life in ministry among the Ephesians, and everything seems to indicate that that's who he's intending this letter to go to. But although there may be some debate as to who he's writing this letter to, there is no debate on why he is writing this letter. This is a body of believers that is in the midst of a church split. And the root of division appears to be a doctrinal controversy. And that controversy centers around the teaching about who Christ is And what he came to do. John is confronting these false teachers that that are modifying, somehow tweaking, slightly manipulating the traditional truths of the apostles' teaching. They are doing something that is messing with that message of the gospel. And John writes with strong apostolic authority. Encouraging the Ephesian church to hold on to those traditional truths of Scripture. Don't be swayed, he's saying, by the opinions of men, but instead be firm in the truth of God's Word. And one of the reasons that this letter has such a tone of urgency about it is because those who have gone out from this body are recruiting members of the Ephesian church To join them. In other words, they're not just walking away. They're actively trying to convince others to to come with them. But I want you to notice. As John steps forward to write this letter. He doesn't take time to explain and refute the details of the heresy of of the false teachers. In fact, we know very little of the details of that heresy. So instead of explaining how what they say is false, John spends his time explaining the details of what they need to know is true. It's like that illustration that we've used several times about those who are trained to identify counterfeit money. The way they identify counterfeit money is not by studying the false, but by becoming so well acquainted with what is true. What the authentic looks like in the finest of details. So that when something false comes along, they recognize it immediately. It's the same idea here. Know what is true so that you can most clearly identify something that is false. See, that's real important to John. Because the people that he is writing to, those that he cares so much about, are increasingly becoming confused and uncertain in the midst of all these mixed messages to the point that they are beginning to question the assurance of their salvation, which is why John says, I am writing this to you so that you may know, so that you may be certain that you have eternal life. That's the heart of his letter. He's writing to remind them About what is true. So that they can trust in God's promises. And not rely on man's opinion. Because see, trusting in God's promises is what ultimately brings assurance. 
It's relying on man's wisdom that leads to all kinds of confusion. Now, we'll see how all this unfolds as we go through this letter together and unpack this. But as we get started, let me give you a little bit of a framework of some things that he's going to make sure to address, especially as it relates to this idea of the assurance of our salvation, which clearly is the main focus of his letter. First of all, John says that the assurance of our salvation is validated in our fellowship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. The assurance of our salvation is validated in our fellowship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. He speaks as he develops this to this internal evidence within our heart of believing in the testimony of the apostolic witness regarding the life and ministry of Jesus. That eyewitness account recorded in Scripture of what Jesus did, who He is, and what He accomplished. Remember, John is writing to an audience some 50 or 60 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And so, by this time, people have come up within the church with their own ideas and opinions. And John wants his readers to know that they can be certain of their salvation if if they believe in the testimony of what he and the other apostles have told them to be true. John says, if, if you want to be certain of your salvation, then the testimony of Scripture is all you need to know. That's where it's found. He goes on to talk about how the assurance of our salvation is also found in our fellowship that we have with the Spirit. The assurance of our salvation is found in the fellowship we have with the Spirit. John wants us to know that the mark of salvation in the life of every true believer is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Once again, you'll notice this is an internal condition that not necessarily anybody can see, but only you can determine. So John will go on to explain how we individually can know that we are being led by the Spirit. He'll talk about how the Spirit convicts us of sin and builds within us this desire to do what is pleasing to the Lord. But John is clear. That keeping the commandments of God is not the means by which we enter into a relationship with the Lord. It is, in fact, the evidence that we have a relationship with the Lord. In other words, obedience is an outcome of our faith, not a requirement of our faith. His instruction is intended to to help us examine our own heart and, and not to create a list In order to judge someone else's. So fellowship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Fellowship with the Spirit through a life of obedience. And then finally, fellowship with one another through a self-sacrificing love. This really is the only external evidence that John will speak to. His point is clear that the most important observable quality in the life of a true believer is a heart of genuine love. Now, as we stop and just kind of consider what we've talked about so far, 
I've given you three examples of things that John will address as we talk about the assurance of our salvation. And it's interesting to me that our, our list often looks very different, doesn't it? Unlike John, we focus on things that we expect people to show us on the outside. As we generate this list of what we expect other people to do. But John is clear. He explains that the assurance of our salvation is best determined by examining our own heart. To determine if we truly believe in the testimony of Scripture. And that we walk in obedience according to that conviction of the Holy Spirit present within us. But if you want to press Him, if you want to press Him to get some kind of external evidence, then He says the most definitive evidence that you will see in the life of a true believer is their love for one another. You'll see it demonstrated in their commitment to community. The desire to build relationships within and throughout the body of Christ. Now we'll see how John will look at each of these and unpack them as he goes through his letter. But that's the framework of what you can expect. Let's go ahead and get started together. Turn to John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. And let's look at it starting in verse 1. It says, 1 John verse 1, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have beheld and our hands handled, convincing the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. And what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Right out of the gate, John makes it painstakingly clear That what he is proclaiming to be true is based on his own eyewitness testimony along with that of his fellow apostles. It is what we have heard, what we have seen, what we have beheld with our own eyes and touched with our own hands. And note that he says that that testimony is from the beginning. It reminds us of a phrase he used in his gospel, right? When he says, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. That phrase in his gospel really intended to look back to literally in the beginning of all time before and including creation. The pre-existent eternal Christ. He goes on to describe that in John chapter 1 verse 2 where he says, He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. But in his letter, he uses that same phrase to really try to describe something different. Here he's talking about the beginning of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. And here's why. Since the gospel message proclaimed by Jesus is ultimately what's under attack. John is pointing to the fact that that he and the other apostles were eyewitnesses of the life and ministry of Jesus from the very beginning to the very end. John is establishing the basis from which he will oppose these new ideas, these additions 
being added by the false teachers. And then in verse 2, John explains what the life and the ministry of Jesus is all about. He says, and this life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested to us. Here's where I believe John kind of takes those thoughts of his gospel and those of his letter and he combines them together by describing that that what was in the beginning, going all the way back to the pre-existent Christ as he was with the father in the fellowship of the Trinity. To the beginning of that ministry where it was incarnated before us. And we saw it. And we heard it. And we touched it. He goes on and says, this is what we proclaim to you. So that we may have eternal life. See, as we said last week, Jesus is not just one sent by God. He is God. Jesus is The God incarnate. And as scripture tells us, all the fullness of deity dwells in him. He is the radiance of God's glory. The exact representation of his nature. Is God incarnate. Who in perfect fellowship with the Father. According to the work of the Spirit. Came to this earth and made known to us the means by which we have eternal life. Now. We say that so often, I think sometimes we may miss the power and magnitude of that promise. God didn't send someone else to do something for Him. He didn't expect us to fulfill certain requirements to earn His favor. The God of all creation, in whose image you and I have been created, chose not to stand at a distance And witness our ultimate demise. But he chose instead. To become personally involved. To provide the only means by which we have eternal life. Jesus is our Emmanuel. Which literally means God with us. So here's something to consider just in light of that fact. If you've ever felt like you've been in a place where where God feels distant, where you feel somehow disconnected, then let me encourage you to look no further than the cross to see just how closely He has drawn near to you and how much He loves you. Because here's the goal He has in mind. Look again at verse 3. What we've seen... What we've heard, we proclaim to you also that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The goal of the cross is fellowship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is so important that John repeats himself that same phrase three times in four verses. What we have seen, what we have heard, we proclaim to you. What we have seen, what we have heard, we proclaim to you. What we have seen, what we have heard, we proclaim to you. So that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship was with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. As Paul tells the Romans... The message of the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
John affirms that the instant we believe in that eyewitness account recorded in Scripture by the apostles, and we respond to that conviction of the Holy Spirit, turning from our selfish desires and putting our trust in Christ alone, we move from darkness to light, from death to life, from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son, from ultimately fellowship with the world to fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. See, fellowship with God through faith in Jesus Christ is the ultimate goal of the cross. But it goes further than that because that fellowship with God is what then introduces us into fellowship with one another. That's his next point. Look again at the end of verse 3. So that indeed, uh, that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy may be made Complete. Our fellowship with God binds us together in our fellowship with one another. Look no further than what Jesus said to his own disciples when he says, They will know that you are my disciples. They will know that you are in relationship with me. How? By your love for one another. It is the identifying marker. Of those who have been saved through faith in Christ alone. So as we finish up this morning. I I want us to consider the importance of that, that fellowship that validates our faith. The assurance of our salvation. And I want to give us three principles that I'd ask that you consider throughout the week. As you think through what we've begun to, to do this morning. And the first is this. True Christian fellowship has to be grounded in the truth of God's Word. Okay? Let me say that again. True Christian fellowship has to be grounded in the truth of God's Word. Even though we don't know the details, what is clear from John's letter is that the the false teachers had somehow diverted from the testimony of the eyewitness account of the apostles. Maybe they added something to it. Maybe they changed some things around. We don't know. What we do know is that John is proclaiming that the words that are recorded in Scripture based on the eyewitness account of the apostles, that those are the truths that we need to understand what it means to have eternal life through faith in Christ alone. If you want to know God's truth, then go no further than God's word. In fact, unity and that that fellowship that we have with with God and with one another through the church is protected when we center our conviction on God's word. And division only happens when we get distracted by man's opinion. This is important. It's important to us as a church. It's important in terms of how we guide and direct fellowship as as a body. And one of the ways you'll see that play out is what we talk about when we talk about small groups. Because we see that as a core identity of how we truly are called to fellowship with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And it's important enough that we've given some guidelines as to what's necessary, kind of a framework that our small groups need to work on, work within. And the very first thing listed is, is what I have here, a commitment to God's word. See, God's word, we say, should be the foundation of every small group. The truth of scripture should always be the source of counsel and not the opinion of people. Using God's work to equip us for life and godliness should be the guiding principle of every small group. Because we are convinced that true Christian fellowship has to be grounded in the truth of God's word. And we're going to see that played out very clearly in John's letter. The second principle is this. True Christian fellowship must be guided by the work of the Holy Spirit. True Christian fellowship must be guided by the work of the Holy Spirit. Here's a passage that uh, I'll just read to you. You'll see it up on the screen. It says this from Ephesians chapter four, verse three. I mean, verse one. Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It's that last statement that I want you to pay particular attention to. It says to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I want you to notice that it is not our job to create unity. It is our job to preserve it. It's good to have church fellowships like we'll have in a few weeks when we have a picnic together and to get together in small groups, as I just mentioned. That's an important part of what we do. But listen, they do not create unity within the body. They are the means by which we protect it. See, our unity as a body is a work of the Holy Spirit. And that same spirit abides in the heart of every believer. And I want you to think about this. If the Holy Spirit exists in perfect fellowship as a part of the Trinity, what does that say about the fellowship we should have with one another? I think what it should say is this. That as long as we are walking in the Spirit, that same unity that exists in the fellowship of the Trinity should be reflected in the fellowship of of God's people who are being guided by God's spirit. And that's why he says, be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Which brings us to our final characteristic. True Christian fellowship brings glory to God. True Christian fellowship brings glory to God. You see, our unity exalts his unity. And ultimately brings glory to his name. And on the other side of that coin, our division, our disunity is what distracts from God's glory. And this is what gives the watching world every reason to look at our mess and say, well, I don't want to have any part of that. So as we go into our study together and we unpack these truths of John's letter, let me encourage us all. 
to be very committed to basing our convictions on the truths of God's Word. Let's be convinced, can we, that this book is inspired by God. And as Paul tells Timothy, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Let's be convinced that this is what we need to base everything we do on as the guide and direction for our life. And let's also be committed in that process to to surrendering our hearts to the work of the Holy Spirit. And here's what that means. It means that we've got to be patient. We've got to wait on the Lord. We've got to be humble. We've got to trust that He will lead us to the depth of unity that we could never possibly create on our own. And finally, let's be convinced that the chief end of man is, in fact, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Ultimately, that's why we do what we do. It's not ultimately for our good, but for His glory. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to have that heart to sacrifice our own needs for the needs of someone else. Remember, God's greatest evidence that of, of our faith in Him is ultimately what? Our love for one another, right? So let's be grounded in God's Word. Let's be, be, be guided by God's Spirit. Let's be committed to living in community as God's people. Because if you think about it, that's all we got that lasts for eternity. God's Word, God's Spirit, God's people. So why not start on it now? Let's pray together. Father, we pray that these would be truths that you would see and the world would see reflected in the life and ministry of Melanie Park. That as brothers and sisters in Christ, we would preserve the unity that we have through the Spirit who binds us together through faith in Christ according to the testimony of your Scripture. And thank you that you've given us such a wealth of of truths to guide us and to direct us to be the basis upon which we function in life and family and fellowship with one another. And I pray, Father, that ultimately all these things are motivated in a way that brings glory and honor to your name. May our unity reflect your unity and bring glory to your name. That is our heart's prayer.